I want to thank you for Marion. I want to thank you for all her hard work and effort and time and dedication and commitment and love to this church in her capacity as admin manager over these last six years. And I just committed to you and and uh, Father, as she looks to the future, may she know, truly know in her heart that that, that you are sovereign, that you rule and reign over all the circumstances of her life, our lives together. And uh, Father, I pray that in some way she would know this morning just how much she is appreciated and loved. Father, we come to the subject of prayer. And I pray that you would take the sword of the Spirit into our hearts this morning and produce in us a people who are more humbly dependent upon you, expressed in the gift and expressed in the weapon of prayer that you've given us. Would you help me to speak to your people? Would you work in and through me? Would you fill me and fill us with your Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. If you, were, if you saw the email uh, earlier this week when I put out my title, The Prayingest uh, Prayer, uh, you may have been wondering where on earth did I get such a word. And uh, I had that from one of our teenagers asking me, Paul, where do you make up these words? Well, I have to tell you that it actually comes from a preacher after my own heart. His name is Alistair Begg. And Alistair Begg does two things. He sings lines from songs in his sermons. Yeah, yeah I see that hand. And, and he also makes up words. And so I was reading his book on prayer this week, and, and he used that phrase, the prayingest prayer, and I thought, it really fits well, and I'm going to use that one. But you'll be happy to know that I will not sing this morning. Oh. The word prayer, just the mention of the word prayer can send Christian hearts into a flood of guilt. If you ask a Christian, how's their walk going? A very usual response will be something like, I should be reading the Bible more and I should be praying more. If we believe that prayer was powerful and if we believe that prayer was the heartbeat of intimacy with our Father, we would pray more. If you were asked to come to a church meeting to hear a sermon on the end times or asked to come to a church meeting to pray, which one would you come to? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. But it's also true to say that our prayers show where our heart is. Let me quote Alistair Begg. He says, quote, my prayers... Whether I pray, how much I pray, about what I pray, reveal my priorities, end quote. A self-righteous person is not going to be pray praying prayers of confession. There's no need to pray prayers of confession if you think you're good enough or you can achieve to be good enough. A self-assured person is not going to pray prayers of petition. You don't pray and ask God for things if you think you've got it all covered. 
Charles Simeon, in one of his sermons, he said this, quote, he said it was more easy for a preacher to preach and study for five hours than pray for his people for one half hour, end quote. So easy, isn't it, to talk to others about others instead of talking to God about others. It's so easy to use the gifts of the Spirit, but not pray in the Spirit. So easy to be busy about activities, but not busy about the work of prayer. So what is the prayingest prayer? Let me show it to you. If you've got your Bible, have a look back at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says there, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And the question that you've got to ask is, for what reason? What reason does he kneel before the Father? Well, look back into verse 13, which is the context. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings. Because of my sufferings, I kneel before the Father. In other words, because of my need, I kneel before the Father. To pray is an admission and expression of our deep dependence upon our Father. The prayingest prayer is a prayer of a dependent person upon their heavenly Father. In other words, the more dependent we are is the more that we will pray. And I hope that one thing that you're going to see this morning, among many others, is that there is a deep need that we have. In fact, that the dependence that we have comes out through this passage. Well, if you've got your sword, have a look at verse 17 and 18 with me. And I want to make two comments about prayer as we move into this passage. Here's the first one. Prayer is one of the armors of God that you put on. Prayer is one of the armors of God that you put on. Now, I want you to show you verse 17 and 18 directly translated from the Greek because it's very unique and, and it shows something very important. Here's how it reads in the Greek. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, by means of all prayer and petition, praying at every time in the Spirit. Do you see it there? The way in which we, 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 we take up the sword of the Spirit is how? By praying. We take up the sword of the Spirit by means of praying in the Spirit. Now, I'll explain that connection in just a moment, but here's the thing that I want you to see. I want you to see that prayer is one of the armors of God that we put on. Prayer is not just something that Paul has tacked on at the end of this passage as if it's not one of the armors. It's very much part of the armor of God. So the second point that I want to make is this. Therefore, prayer is a weapon of spiritual war. Take a look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 and 4, where Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Prayer, like all the armor, is a powerful weapon of war with which we demolish 
strongholds, demonic strongholds. And, and put it this way, prayer is part of the weaponized armor. And if prayer is part of the weaponized armor that's been given to us, the very first thing we need to understand is the war itself. The war. If you've got your sword, take a look at verse 11 and 12. Here's the war. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle or our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's what I want you to see. The war that we fight as Christians is not against a seen enemy. We fight against an unseen enemy. It's against the demonic forces that are in the heavenly realms that we cannot see. It means that the real enemy is not ungodly people. The real enemy are the demonic forces behind God, ungodly people. The real enemy is demonic forces behind ungodly institutions, behind ungodly governments, behind ungodly systems. But the question that we've got to ask is this. Why, why are the demonic forces attacking us? Why are they at war against us? And the book of Ephesians has really told us what that is. So watch the screen as it comes up. Here is the reason why the demonic forces, using ungodly institutions and peoples and governments, why they attack us, why they're at war against us. And the reason is this, because we are in Christ. That's why they attack us. So Christian, here's who you are in Christ. And all these references come out of the book of Ephesians. Christian, you are chosen in Christ. Christian, you are predestined in love. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. You are His body. You are alive. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You are saved. You have the gift of faith. You are God's workmanship. You are righteous. You are holy. You are the Father's child. That is who you are in Christ. That's what you have in Christ. And because of who you are and what you have in Christ, that's the reason why the demonic forces attack us. In other words, to make this very practical, he attacks us by lies about who and what we are in Christ. Did you hear that? Using ungodly systems, using ungodly governments, using ungodly people, using ungodly cults, whatever it might be. He attacks us with lies about who and what we are in Christ. Let me show you how this works in the passage that we've got. Take up your sword, chapter 6 and verse 14. It is going to come up on the screen as well. Notice what Paul says. He says, buckle the truth around your waist. Why? Because the devil attacks us about with lies about the truth of who Christ is, of what Christ has done, and who we are in Christ. 
You see, the devil comes through all those ungodly things with the lies that Jesus is not fully God and fully man in his, in his incarnation. He attacks us with the truth that you're not chosen and you're not predestined in love before the Father. He comes up with lies and says, you're not fully forgiven and you're not fully redeemed. Lies that you're not sealed with the Spirit. Lies that you're not alive, you're not saved, you're not God's workmanship. The devil wants you to believe the lies that it's not all of grace. It must be grace plus something else. Then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because the devil keeps on coming at us with lies that we are not righteous by grace and faith alone. I mean, after all, look at yourself, Christian. You keep on sinning, don't you? You foul up again and again and again. You sin again and again. How on earth can you say that you are righteous? How on earth can you say that you are holy? How on earth can you say that you are justified before the Father forever? Really? Then Paul says this. He says, ah, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Which means Paul says, I want you to stand on the truth of the gospel. It's only the gospel that gives you a permanent relationship of peace with the Father. And it's only the gospel that goes out to others. It's only the gospel that's going to give a person peace with God. But the devil comes along with his lies and says, no, 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 no. It's not the gospel alone. The gospel does not give you a permanent relationship of peace with the Father. And taking the gospel out to those who don't know Jesus, that's not going to give them a permanent relationship of peace. Or the lie that the gospel is not enough. You need something, the gospel plus something else. Or the lie, uh, you know, you, you don't need to preach the gospel, you just need to live a godly life. Or the lie, there are other gospels, there are other ways to have a relationship with God. And then in verse uh, 16, he says this. He says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Do you see, that, that, do you see what the flaming arrows are? What are they? They're lies. That's what they are. They're lies. And the lies keep on coming against your faith. Christian, it's not faith alone. How ridiculous. Faith alone to be saved? No, it's got to be something else. It's got to be faith plus baptism. It's got to be faith plus membership at BBC. It's got to be faith plus going to church. It's got to be faith plus praying. It's got to be faith plus reading your Bible. It's got to be faith plus doing some sort of good work. And then notice in verse 17, he says, Take up the helmet of salvation. Why? Because here come the lies against your salvation. Christian, there's no way you can be absolutely sure that you're saved. There is no way you can have such confidence in Christ that he will save you from now right through the end to eternity. Really? Did God really say that? And then it comes again in verse 17. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
Because the lies come, don't they? Ah, Christian, you're standing on the Word of God, really? I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, there are translation errors over 3,000 years, right? I mean, it's not completely reliable, is it? It's not completely sufficient. I mean, hmm. But there's other Bibles, isn't there? There's the book of, and the book of, and you need... Do you see the war? That's the war. The devil very simply attacks, listen, he attacks the gifts of grace that you have in Christ. Every single one of them. Here's how Revelation 12, 12 puts it. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's the dead saints. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. The devil might be evil, but he knows how to read. He knows that his time is short. He is a defeated foe. He knows that he was absolutely, his power over God's people was decimated at the cross. And he knows that he's going to be going into eternal hell one day. And so his modus operandi is basically to, to, to try and incessantly lie to us in order to undermine Christ to us, undermine our confidence in him, and undermine absolutely every gift of grace that he has given us. That's the war. That's the war. So from the war, we need to go to the war prayers, the war prayers. So have a look at verse 17 and 18 again, and let's just open this up a little bit. So at the end of the armor, it's part of the armor, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So take up the Word of God by means of all prayer and petition, praying at every time in the Spirit. One of the most important weapons of war against the lies of the devil is praying in the Spirit for ourselves and for one another. Praying in the Spirit simply means praying by or with the sword of the Spirit. You take the sword of the Spirit by the means of the Spirit. If that sounds still a bit, a bit weird... In other words, to pray in the Spirit has got nothing to do with tongues. It's got nothing to do with getting weird, nothing to do with getting all mystical. To pray in the Spirit means to pray according to the will of God in the Word of God. Does that make sense? To pray in the Spirit means to pray according to the will of God in the Word of God. I'll explain it and open up in a minute. We could say, therefore, that praying in the Spirit simply means to pray back the Word of God to God. It means practically that we're always praying to the Father for Him to plant the truth. Where? Deep down in our heart. Let me show you how it works. Take up your sword again. Let's run through from verse 10. I don't think this is on the screen. No. 
So look at it if you've got your Bible. From verse 10, we pray, verse 10, that we pray for us and we pray for one another that we will be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Verse 11, look at it. Put on the full armor of God. We pray for us and we pray for one another that we'll put on this armor of God. So what does that look like? When we start to doubt or believe the lie that Jesus Christ is not the only way, truth, and life, we pray to the Father that His truth would be planted deep within our hearts. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, we pray to the Father that we will buckle the truth around our ways, that we pray to the Father that we will believe that we are righteous in Christ even when we sin again and again and again. When we're tempted to believe that Jesus or faith in Jesus is not enough, we pray to the Father, Father, give us to the faith to believe that He is enough. When, we, when, when we're tempted to believe that somehow our sin and our suffering and our shame can unhinge our salvation and somehow our sin, suffering and shame can keep us away from the Father, we pray, Father, no. Father, help us to believe that even in sin, suffering, and shame, we can run to you. We can come to you again and again and again. When we somehow start to believe that our sin and suffering and shame can unhinge us from the love of God in Christ, we pray to the Father that we would know that love which is deeper Deeper, wider, longer, higher than anything else in all the world that surpasses all understanding. That's why in Ephesians chapter 3, that's why Paul prays that. Father, may your children know how, how deep and wide and, and long and high is your love because that's the very thing that Satan goes for you at. When you sin, oh, God doesn't love you, Jamie. In your shame, he's turned his back on you. Man, and you sinned again and again. The Father does not love you. When we're somehow tempted to believe that we can lose our salvation because of sinning, we pray to the Father, Father, root the truth that we are safe and secure in Christ forever and ever and ever. Let me take this a little bit further. When we're tempted to believe that our Heavenly Father will not provide for us, and we get all anxious and stressed and depressed about that, we have to go to our Father and pray, Father, help me to believe that you have promised to provide for me. And you have the power to provide everything I need when I need it. When you're tempted to believe that you're just at the end of your rope. You've had enough. You're sick of it all. You're sick of your sin. You're sick of the sin of others. You're just sick of the whole deal. You're sick of being sick. You're sick of fighting it all. And you get to that point and you just think, I can't go on. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to walk away from Jesus. I'm going to walk away from the church. I'm going to actually walk out of this life. You have to get down on your knees before the Father and pray, Father, help me to believe that you have promised never, ever, ever to put me through anything where there's no way out. 
And you've always promised to provide the strength and the help that I need, that we can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, when you get to that point where you start to believe the lie, that there's no way that that ingrained, habitual God-hating, debilitating sin, it just can't be broken and it's going to consume you and it's going to knock you out. When you get to that point, you have to come before the Father and say, Father, Father, I need, I, I need to believe and I need to know and I need to have the power and I need to have the strength to be able to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. We have to ask Him to implant the truth in our hearts that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That He who is in us is greater than the one that is on the outside. You see, because here's the thing, that when we sin, when we're sinning, we're believing lies. When we sin, we believe that the pleasure of sin is better than the pleasure of obedience. And we have to come before the Father and ask, Father, help me to know, help me to, to, to taste, not just in my head, in my heart, to taste that the pleasure of obedience is better than the pleasure of sin. Do you see it? You see, putting on all the armor of God is about putting on faith. Praying in the Spirit for one another is about praying for the faith of our brothers and sisters that we stand strong in the truth, whatever that truth is. Praying in the Spirit for us and praying in the Spirit for one another is praying that your brother and sister will grow strong in the faith, that their faith will become more robust, more resilient, less Brittle. You remember, you remember Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? When he was tempted to not take the cup which the Father had ordained for him to drink. You remember what he did, don't you? What did he do? He prayed. He fell on his feet face before the Father in blood-stained sweat and submitted His will to the Father. That is prayer. That is praying in the Spirit. Which brings me thirdly to the war room. Any of you remember that movie, The War Room? was uh, made back in 2015. In fact, if I've got my memory right, Arana Cinemas actually showed it. And I think there was a whole bunch of us, there might have been 80 to 100 of us, that all went to go and see The War Room. The movie is centered around an elderly Christian woman whose name was Miss Clara. And Miss Clara, in her big house, had set aside a closet as her praying war room. That's where she used to go and get down on her knees and pray to the Father. And in the context of the movie, it was for her children. And in one of the lines in the movie, this is, this is what she said. I don't know if she was talking to her daughter or was the daughter-in-law, one of the two. But one of the lines of Miss Clara, she said this. She said, I set up the war room in order to stand up and fight the enemy. You need to get down on your knees and pray. And this war room 
this closet was the place where she got down on her knees and she fought and she prayed. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that you go home and take one of your rooms or your closet or your shoe closet, whatever, and turf it all out and turn it into a prayer closet. It's not what I'm suggesting. However, that might not be a bad thing for you to do, especially if you've got lots of shoes. But where's the war room? The war room is not in the closet. Where's the war room? It's in your heart. That's where the war room is. It's from the heart that we daily come dependent, humble, before our Father on our knees to ask Him for the things that we need and for ask Him that we stand firm in the truth, on the gospel, in Christ, and for one another. Let me put it to you this way, brothers and sisters. Your and my greatest need is not rescue from harm, rescue from sickness, rescue from suffering, rescue from hardship, rescue from persecution. Our greatest need is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Our greatest need is faith. To believe that what God is doing in any hardship, pain, suffering, and sickness. That's our need. For that we pray. Our greatest need is to believe the truth that God works for good in everything. Our greatest need is to believe that there is nothing, and I mean nothing, not even sin, shame, and suffering, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Our greatest need is to believe that that person may have intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Our greatest need is to believe that when we've been battered, bruised, and abused, that we are not ever forsaken by our Heavenly Father or abandoned by Him. Our greatest need is to believe that the treasures of Christ are so much better than the treasures of this world. When someone is sick, when someone is suffering at the hands of injustice, when someone has been betrayed, when they've been persecuted, their greatest need is faith to believe, to truly believe from the heart that their Father is sovereign, that He'll bring all justice from injustice one day, that He is redeeming all evil, and that one day all evil will be wiped from this place in the new heavens and the new earth. Where's your war room? Are you warring in your room? Are you warring before the Father? Did you see, uh, did you see where the Apostle Paul's war, war room was? Did you see it? Have a look at it in verse 19. Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I speak words, words may be given me, so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Where's, where's Paul as he, as, he, as he writes this letter? Oh, he's in prison yet again. Hotel prison. What, what, what do you reckon are some of the lies that would be coming at him? The devil using all sorts of ungodly things and people to send lies at Paul. What would some of those lies be? 
Oh, Paul, the devil won. He put you in prison. Lie. Lie. Oh, the gospel's been thwarted. The gospel can no longer go forward. Do you notice that in the prayer, there's not one single prayer for him to be released? You see that? Here's Paul in prison. He is chained to a Roman god. They probably did them on a, like a roster system, you know, six hours on, six hours off, who knows what. And, and Paul is just chained to different Roman gods for, who long, for how long, we don't even know. And what's Paul praying? Uh, Lord, give me the courage to speak that I will proclaim the gospel to the very gods to whom I am chained. Help me to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to a six-foot Roman to whom I'm chained. You could put it this way. Paul's prison cell was the physical war room, wasn't it? He made the prison into a war room. But the real war room was the heart, right there, chained, who knows how chained to this Roman God. Praying and praying for God's people to stand in the truth and for him to be able to open his mouth to present the gospel to these gods that are dead in sin and on their way to hell. Paul believed that God has sovereignly ordained that he would be in jail in order to what? Proclaim the gospel to these men. So let me start to close up and I'll give you a fourth heading. The wartime walkie-talkie. I said to you in the beginning that the prayingest prayer is that of dependence upon their heavenly Father. Do you, do you see how dependent you are? Do you see that although you have everything in Christ, do you see how vulnerable you are? Do you see how vulnerable you are to his attacks, to his lies, to his schemes, to his wiles? That's why prayer, and I love this little phrase by John Piper. He says that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. And it's like God has given you this wartime walkie-talkie in order to be able to speak to your supreme commander in heaven at all times and all places, right from the war room, which is your heart. Mm. I want to start to close up by asking you some questions. And you just think about these and hope that you might be able to take some of them home with you in your heart and think about them. Is your, prayer, is, is your life marked by humble, dependent prayer? I guess another way to put that is, are you praying, praying, existies prayers? Okay, forget that word. Uh, is your life marked by humble, dependent prayer? Because you just know how dependent you are. Is your heart a war room of prayer? If the only person that can change the heart, if the only person that can bring life from death 
if the only person that can create a new creation out of an old creation is the Father through His Son, through the Gospel, are we war-rooming before the Father for the salvation of our loved ones? Are we down on our knees, humbly asking Him to save? Brother, sister, mother, auntie, uncle, niece, neighbor, friend, colleague, boss, whatever it might be. Are we war-rooming? Are we war-rooming against the incessant temptations of the devil and the flesh and the world? Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 26, 41? This is what he said. He said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is prayer what we do when our church is under threat? When the unity of BBC is under threat, when it's being attacked, is that what we do? Do we pray? Do we get down on our knees before our Father and ask Him for the strength and the power to maintain the unity in the Spirit? Are we praying that together we stand firm in the truth against the wiles and schemes of the evil one? Is, is, is that how you pray for your brother and sister? Do you war room on your knees for the people of God? And are we praying, are we war rooming that when the opportunity comes that we would fearlessly proclaim the gospel as we should. Wherever we are, even if God were to put you into an Australian jail for being a Christian. going to sing and then I'm going to ask you to do something before you go and get tea and coffee. Can I have the music team please?